from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols. And I'm Nick Richard. And I'm Anne-Marie Drolet. Here is a guest. Hey, y'all. Hey, Anne-Marie. Hey, Nick. You know, I got to tell you, I love our logo. I was at an open street event over the weekend and I was showing some people our logo. And every time I see a bike route logo, it makes me think of our logo, Bike Talk. But when I brought up our logo to show some of the people that I was talking to, chickens came up and they were like, what is that? Chickens. So where did those chickens come from, Nick? That was a graffiti artist named Cache. Oh, well, I like him, but I like our Bike Talk logo better. Yeah, I like our new logo because every time we see a bike lane sign, my daughter thinks it's advertising our show. It is. It is, I guess, now. Well, so if you see the chickens on a bike or you see the Bike Talk logo, know that it's our show. It's Bike Talk. I think the idea behind the chickens was that we're chickens, you know, and the system is the farmer. Okay. Well, as I was saying, I was at an open street event over the weekend and it was, it was really wonderful. The street was wide open. There were so many different people. It was a great day. People were stopping and buying coffee and having breakfast and lunch and all different kinds of people were mixing and and really just enjoying the day. Anne-Marie was not there because you were at work, right, Anne-Marie? I was at work. Well, Metro Bike Share did have a booth there, but I was fixing the bikes back at the warehouse. But I'm glad everyone had fun. So Cyclovia, it's to introduce people to what it could be like. It's what the world could be like if there weren't cars everywhere. You want to play some sound from Cyclavia, Taylor? Yeah, let's do it. My name's Caroline, and I love Cyclavia. I think this is like my fourth one that I've gone to. And I just think it's a great opportunity for people in the community to really take advantage of the streets, um, to be able to feel safe. Um, be safe, that's big. Yeah, yeah, to be able to bike around. I feel like people in L.A. have a lot of fear about biking because it's not as common. There's not a lot of great infrastructure around it. So it's a great opportunity for people to really just get on their bikes and have fun. It's a beautiful You're like a regular a biker, I can tell by your Cannondale. Yeah. yeah. Hey, what's your name? I'm Anna. What's your favorite thing about the open streets? Um, I love that it's so easy to see um, everything you're passing. Oh, that's great. Like when you're in a car, you're kind of just rushing and focusing on traffic, and here you get to like see what's on the street, what yeah. you're actually living around. What's your name? Michaela. Hey, Michaela. What's your hey. favorite thing about Ciclovia? Um, I just love that I feel like it's an opportunity to bike safely without fear of getting hit by cars, which I think especially for, like, children and, and in L.A. is, like, almost impossible most places. I also think it's a, good, a great chance for people to see that L.A. could be an incredible bike city. Like, there's absolutely no reason why if we had protected bike lanes. Oh, I would. love to hear you say that. Have you voted on HLA yet or not? I haven't voted yet, but I'm definitely going to vote yes on it. But yes, we need, if we had protected bike lanes, I feel like we could get everywhere faster than in a car. Faster than in a car. That's exactly yeah. right. What's your name? I'm Miriam. What's your favorite thing about open streets? Uh, I love the sense of freedom you get. You know, it just like feels like a weight's lifted off you and you don't have to worry about cars. What's your name? Aaron. Hey, Aaron. What's your favorite thing about open streets? Um, I think, yeah, the safety and, you know, the community aspect of it. I like that they do it in different parts of L.A. and not just, you know, popular streets. You know, would you support something like this every week, like every Sunday or? Yeah. I mean, I would support it, you know, every day on certain streets. Um, And do you all ride your bike when it's not an open street? Do you ride every day? I don't ride every day, but I try to ride every weekend. Every weekend? 
I'm too scared of cars hitting me. <laughs> yeah, that's scary. How about you? I'm too scared of cars hitting me. Oh, you guys don't bike every day? I do. I bike every day. Yeah, I bike there somewhere. you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how about you? I don't bike every day, but sometimes with yeah. Caroline. Yeah. But you would if there were more safe streets. Yeah. yeah. Have a great ride the rest of the day. You too. Awesome. Yeah. You too. The thing I heard over and over, not just from them, but from other people, is that they wish these kinds of open street events were more often and connecting more different neighborhoods. So that people can see what it could be like if we had more space to walk and bike. Well, yesterday was a beautiful day to bike. Today, I was out running some errands and I got caught in the rain. And it was right around that 4.30, 5 o'clock time. And all of a sudden, when the rain came in, it got dark. And it occurred to me, Nick and Anne-Marie, that you know, are there legal issues that affect cyclists like there are for cars? So we asked Jim Pokras of Pokras and De Las Reyes to come back on the show and maybe give us some insight. Jim, welcome back to Bike Talk. Well, thank you for having me back here today. So do the laws change for bikes also when the inclement weather comes in, when it's icy or dark or uh, solar eclipse or something like that? Well, I'm out here in California. So in California, cyclists have the same rights and responsibilities to be on the road as vehicles. And that's in the vehicle code section. Now taken in a situation where it's, it's raining outside and as to what the rights and responsibilities of a cyclist are under our basic speed law, no one can drive or be on a bicycle at a speed greater than reasonable and prudent, having due regard for um, what's going on around them. And that includes like the weather, visibility, traffic, surface of the road, width of the road, and you know whether they're on the sidewalk or a bike path or on the roadway. You have to be reasonably imprudent given the circumstances. So the, if the circumstances are such like today where it's raining out or um, if you're back east and you're riding on snow or ice, um, you've got to operate your bicycle um, in a reasonably imprudent way. Is there like a legal definition of reasonably imprudent? No, there isn't a definition specifically with regard to that. In a civil or a criminal trial, or if you get cited for it, if a police officer feels that you're not being reasonably imprudent, um, they can give you a citation for it. In the civil case, if you have a crash and somebody feels that you're not um, adhering to the um, circumstances and being reasonably imprudent because of the weather or visibility or traffic or riding at a high rate of speed, they can hold that against you if you have some type of a crash. Do you know if there are cases where just being out in the elements has been held against someone, like it's deemed irresponsible just to be riding, like if it's raining super hard or snowing and there's and someone gets into a crash? Or if it's icy or something like that. Yeah. But as far as the vehicle code says, you can ride in any weather that you want to. Okay, mm -hmm. there's nothing that stops you and says, you cannot ride if it's raining out. You can't ride if there's ice on the road. You can go do that. But in a civil side, if you have a crash and somebody goes back and says, why were you riding You know, in the snow? Or why were you riding because it was raining so hard or it was so dark? How should you be riding You know, given those circumstances? What should you have on your bike? Should you have a light um, if it's dark? And this is during the day. You're not in violation of a vehicle code, but it would be reasonably imprudent to maybe have a, a light in the front, a light in the back, reflectors or wearing some kind of clothing that you know makes you more visible. But it's not a violation of the law. 
bikes and cars have to follow the same laws when it comes to criminal cases. But when it comes to civil cases, that's where comparative negligence comes in. So if a cyclist and a car get into a collision and the cyclist doesn't have lights on or is not following reasonable and prudent road rules in inclement weather, they could be held comparatively negligent, which means they might get less money in a settlement if it is deemed that the driver was at fault. Right. That's exactly right. You have to look at both sides of the coin um, in a crash situation from a civil standpoint. And the civil standpoint is, you know, whether or not they were riding reasonably and prudent given the circumstances. Right. And that will come up and make a difference in the, in the outcome. If you're involved in an accident on the civil side, the next question that comes up is, you know, how do you get compensation for that if you have to file a lawsuit? If it happens to be a vehicle uh, that's involved in the crash, um, you'd look to the insurance of the, of the person that was in the automobile. If they didn't have any insurance, there is coverage for your injuries and damages if you're on a, a bicycle, but you also have an automobile insurance policy available under your uninsured motorist coverage. You can go to your own insurance company and they would step into the shoes of the person that didn't have insurance and pay for your damages up to the amount of your limits. But that's only if you have a car and car insurance. That's exactly right. But most people don't know that when they're riding a bike that their automobile coverage you know, may cover them for any damages that they have. And it won't have any effect on your insurance where they're going to hike up your insurance premiums or cancel you because there's a specific insurance code section in California that says that as long as an accident is less than 51% your fault, your insurance company cannot increase your premiums or cancel your policy. And so it gives you a source of you know, recovery if you're involved in, a, in an accident and the other person's uninsured. Do any insurance companies write policies for uninsured motorists, for people who ride their bike? I believe that there are some out there. As it stands right now, it's very difficult. And there only may be a few that will write it. Right. Well, I think all this legal stuff is fascinating. While I never went to law school, I have played a lawyer on TV. <laughs> so uh, Jim Pokras from Pokras and De Los Reyes, thanks so much for coming on and clearing up some really difficult issues because I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Nick and Marie, did you guys? No, uh, I'm not clear on whether you can legally get away with certain things, but I guess it comes down to prudent and uh, responsible. Right. And as always, I think it means check the laws in your own state. I guess you have to think about what your average person on a jury would think is what it comes down to. Right. And that is the definition of reasonably imprudent as to what a jury thinks. Right. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Jim. Okay. Thank you. Jim Pokras of Pokras and De Los Reyes. Right safe. Thank you. So we have three interviews today, heads of active transportation coalitions. First, Kendra Ramsey, the executive director of the California Bicycle Coalition. Then we have Jose Antonio Zayas-Caban, the executive director of Our Streets Minneapolis. And then we have Todd Scott, who is the executive director of the Detroit Greenway Coalition. Great. We're here with 
Kendra Ramsey, CalBikes, uh, relatively new executive director. Yep, been first... here for six months. Welcome. And there's a lot that you're looking at legislatively right now, isn't there, in California? There is, there is. We have four priority bills this year. We have another 12 that we're supporting. So uh, we have our work cut out for us to make the road safer for people biking in California. So your priority bills, what are those? We have... SB 960, which is Senator Scott Wiener, complete streets on Caltrans corridors. So essentially um, requiring Caltrans, the State Department of Transportation, to provide complete streets in all of their own roadway projects. Um, it is sort of a re-envisioned version of a bill that was passed in the legislature but vetoed by our governor back in 2019. This time we have also included transit priority policies in the bill. So we're very so excited. This would make complete streets on every Caltrans project? Yes, it would basically require them to include complete streets elements um, on, on the projects that they're already doing, which we've found even since Caltrans adopted a complete streets policy that in many cases, um, these elements are not being included, even though their own policies already uh, require them to do so. So this would legislate that requirement. What's a complete streets element? Um, so it could be putting in a bike facility. It could be um, marking a crosswalk, um, adding, you know, curb ramps, adding um, leading pedestrian interval on the crosswalk indicator. Um, there are lots of different things it can include. It really depends on the streets context. Um, whether you're in, you know, sort of a suburban, a rural or an urban environment. In many cases, it, it can be improving bike facilities when the road's already being sort of torn up and redone. Um, and, and so it's a, you know, really low cost way to include these facilities in projects that are already underway. Well, that's huge because Caltrans is the Department of Transportation <laughs> for California, and that's a lot of projects. It is a lot of projects. It's a lot of money. We'd like to see all that state funding go to benefit everyone that's using the roads, not just people in cars. Yeah. And Scott Wiener has another bill out that you're, is one of your priorities, right? Yes. Yes, he does. So SB 961 um, would require trucks and trailers to have side guards, which would prevent side underride crashes, basically where a person typically on a bike, also in a car, can get swept under the rear wheels of a tractor trailer. Um, so these side guards would prevent that from happening. Um, mm -hmm. And it would additionally require new passenger vehicles to be equipped with a speed governor that would prevent the vehicle from exceeding the posted speed limit by 10 miles an hour. So it would prevent someone from illegally speeding. Wow. It's almost like burying the lead there, talking about side guards <laughs> and, and then talking about the speed governors, because the data is out there that side guards is a obvious mm -hmm. needed safety improvement and it should be on trucks. But putting speed governors on all passenger cars so they can't go 100 in a 20 mile per hour zone is amazing. I mean, we know they put them on e-bikes. Yeah, they do. And, you know, we also know that a third of all traffic fatalities in the most recent five year period were speeding related. Speeding, you know, when a car is going 35, it's five times more likely to kill someone that it hits than if it's traveling 20 miles an hour. So it's a, it's a huge factor in roadway injuries and fatalities. And so there's going to be opposition from the auto industry. Yeah. And a lot of individuals may also feel that this is an, an encroachment on on their ability to drive. But, uh, you know, we also know that people were against seatbelts and um, probably airbags as well. And over time, we've grown to know that these are things put in vehicles to keep us safe and um, keep our loved ones safe. And, you know, we're hopeful that folks will see it that way. And and this is really a technology that can be 
put to great use by decreasing the likelihood of, of people being seriously injured and, and killed if, if they are hit by a vehicle. Yes. Is there a catchy name for that, Bill? I'm not sure that there is. <laughs> um, the speed kills, Bill. Safe vehicle, okay. save lives. How about that? And so Scott Wiener with two big bills and Scott's mm -hmm. a friend of the show, been on twice and a friend of Cowbike. And there's another bill by our friend, assembly yes. members. Yes, um, also a great friend of people biking and walking in California. So AB2290, the quicker and better bikeways bill. It's essentially the 2024 Omnibike bill. And you might remember in 2022, um, she had another Omnibike bill that made four changes to the vehicle code to make streets safer for bicycling. So this year's version has three components. First, it would limit state funding for class three bikeways. Um, so that's, you know, bike routes, or people might know them as streets with sharrows. Um, it would limit that funding to streets with speed limits under 20 miles an hour. Essentially, that's the only place that those are recommended. Um, over 20 miles an hour, bicycle facilities should provide a separate space for people biking. Basically, state funds can't be used for inappropriate use of a class three bikeway. So that they can't say that they're doing something while just putting in sharrows. Exactly. A lot of projects are incorporating class three bikeways as a complete streets element on something like a 35 or 45 mile an hour road. And even to an experienced cyclist, that can be a very uncomfortable and dangerous situation to be in. So we shouldn't be seeing those in, in 2024 as a bike facility funded by our state. So that would eliminate so, that use. Okay. What else in there? It would also eliminate um, loopholes in a road maintenance and rehab funding program. Currently, agencies can decline to do bicycle improvements on a facility if a parallel bike facility is available. And so basically, this would require that if an agency is using these road maintenance and rehab funds, they must include bike improvements that are incorporated into a local bike plan um, when they're doing these repairs. So these are funds that are being spent on repairs, and it's essentially just requiring that they stripe in those bike lanes, put in those facilities um, if they're using that state funding. We're following the ballot measure in Los Angeles, Healthy Streets Los Angeles, which will require mm -hmm. the city to implement its own mobility plan every time a street is repaved. Is this like a statewide version of that? It definitely sounds that way. You know, it does limit it just to that one funding program, but that road maintenance and rehab program was created by SB1, the huge transportation funding program several years ago. It is very similar. So local plans and bike facilities will have to be included by every road project funded by the road maintenance and rehab program. Exactly. Um, and the third component yeah. of that bill is the establishment of a quick build pilot at Caltrans. Currently, the Department of Transportation doesn't allow quick build techniques in many of their projects, um, which can add uh, safety elements for people biking and walking in a much quicker time frame than a typical years long project. And so it would it would pilot test that and see if it's um, a good fit for going forward. Usually, I think of quick builds as being a guerrilla thing that people like tactical urbanism, but cities do that. Cities and I guess yeah. Caltrans will. Yeah, and it, it can be, but you can do so tactical urbanism. A lot of those um, tend to be more temporary demonstrations. There are a lot of demonstration projects that can be done quickly. But I think this what this bill is looking at is using those quick techniques before a permanent installation. So something that they can do quickly, but that will last. Laura Friedman, if you want to listen to her on the show or Scott Weiner, or listen to them both when they were on together, 
people can just search at biketalk.org. Uh, they've both been on the show a few times. Then you have your fourth priority, yeah. not that it's in order of priority. But... Right. The fourth priority is uh, from Assemblymember Bonta. So no freeway expansions for freight. And that's AB 2535. And it basically uh, prohibits funding under the Trade Corridor Enhancement Funding Program. It prohibits funding to a project that would add a general purpose lane to a highway or expand highway capacity in communities that are already overburdened by pollution. Vehicles are a large component of that pollution. And so essentially it's saying that this big pot of state money, you cannot expand the freeway, which will uh, increase demand on that freeway, increase traffic, make more congestion, more pollution, more greenhouse gases. And these heavily impacted communities tend to be primarily black and brown folks, and um, they're already burdened by excess pollution. And so it basically will create a layer of protection to eliminate the use of those state funds to expand freight traffic through those communities. Creating induced demand. Exactly. As well as all that greenhouse gases and pollution. And then you're also supporting 12 other bills and people can go to calbike.org. They'll see what those are. Exactly. We're sponsoring a number of bills. There are others that we support. Um, we're watching some that we're you know, maybe not so sure of. The deadline to introduce bills was last week. We know that there are some bills that are not well-defined at this point. So we'll continue to watch to see if other things come up that are relevant to bicycling. But for now, that's kind of what we're looking at. And we invite folks to check out the website and we'll be sending out action alerts as we want our legislators to vote on things. Definitely love the support. Thanks, Kendra. Kendra Ramsey, Executive Director of the California Bicycle Coalition. Thanks so much for having me. This is Jose Antonio Zayas Caban. He's the executive director of Our Streets Minneapolis. Hi, Jose. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Great to have you. And we talked to Laura Mitchell, your board president, a while back, and that was a good talk that she referred us to you. And you have nine legislative priorities for this session. You call them the nine bills of power, right? Absolutely. For those who love the Lord of the Rings, uh, some of us do too. And when we realize there were nine, why not call it that? So this is how you want to direct the dollars from a funding measure that went through last year, right? Yes, absolutely. So last year... Um, by almost any national measure, there was a sort of historic transportation bill uh, that moved forward in Minnesota as a metro-wide tax that will provide funding to increase frequency in the Twin Cities regional system. There's about $60 million for walking, rolling, and biking infrastructure. Um, there are new requirements for highway expansion projects, investments in passenger rail, uh, and electric bike rebates. And uh, I think it's uh, over 150 million for Metro Mobility. You know, it was uh, an important step, but we identified some gaps that are sort of in alignment with our values that we wanted to address. Moving away from vehicles and really starting to invest more in 24-7 bus lanes, increasing BRT across the city and dedicated bus lanes. We're really into stopping highway expansion and we're working on highway removal projects. So we want to curb that. And uh, even though money leads to new infrastructure, oftentimes historically in the U.S., new infrastructure leads to displacement and gentrification. And I think this is a really important gap to point out because we don't want any new 
land use infrastructure bills to lead to another wave of harms on the same communities that have been devastated for multiple generations, uh, primarily Black Americans in the U.S. and Minnesota, of course, uh, Native Americans have really suffered to gain any ground on their stolen land and just not having any access to rebuild generational wealth. You know, smaller gaps or important ones is that, you know, we don't fall into the trap of we'll just put nice things on highways to leave highways in place. So like I-35, for example, in Minnesota uh, was rebuilt. Traffic, in my opinion, is just as bad. And to kind of like make some people happy, it's like, here's some breadcrumbs, BRT lanes on a highway. You know, we're really looking for a mode shift, you know, building with urgency. You know, we want to make sure that we're really pushing towards reducing vehicle miles traveled as quickly as possible. We know they're in a climate crisis and that really needs to be addressed so that the next generation of people are enduring the worst climate conditions in history. That's all the impetus for these bills that you're supporting at Our Streets Minneapolis. Defining highway purpose to include all modes of transportation, close the greenhouse gas, planning law, loophole. Uh, what else? You have create a cumulative impacts law for transportation, pass a community preferred alternative act where neighborhoods make their own options instead of being given a menu by the Department of Transportation. Uh, reforming traffic modeling in the Twin Cities because it's based on old data. So the traffic modeling is basically to take into account behavioral changes when you change the right-of-way. So rather than just studying the amount of cars during peak times, they would also have to study how people's behavior would change when you add other modes of transportation and when you repurpose the land for other uses like housing and commercial development. So in other words to encourage MnDOT to switch modes, but also use land in a way that literally encourages people to stop driving and creates what we call traffic evaporation. The opposite is true. What happens when you make highways wider is is what's called induced demand, which is sort of like a business term. And the way I describe it to people is when you get a bigger house, you put more stuff in it. And when you get a smaller house, you tend to be more economical. And the idea on highways is When you reduce highway, give people other ways to travel and make things closer, people don't just drive different ways. They just stop driving and that reduces vehicle miles traveled. And that's just one of them. And you've got another to regulate heavy and oversized vehicles, which we talk a lot about, creating an asphalt art pilot program. Both of these, I think, are to decrease fatalities and injuries at speed. Um, That's correct. Yeah. And you have another one to limit speed on one of your highways, the Olson Memorial, and sort of overturn the 85th percentile rule and study regional bike share in the Twin Cities because yours closed, right? Yeah. The nice ride city of Minneapolis relationship ended. And not only do we feel like we need a rideshare program in Minneapolis, we'd rather it be regional and it be publicly funded so that it's more accessible across the economic spectrum. You know, ultimately, if you want more people walking, biking and rolling, it's just like zero fare transit. You know, if you make it economically accessible, more people are going to use it. And that on top of these bills that are basically encouraging MnDOT to use their dollars to build things other than highways and to build things that are not poisoning our communities. You know, in combination, you make it more affordable for people to travel in other ways. You make it easier for people to live in proximity to things. People are going to choose other modes of transportation because they can afford it, things are close, and they're also gonna be healthier. 
in the long run, which is something that we need to address. Thank you for putting these up and prioritizing these bills. We hope that they get passed, and you think all of them. Absolutely, that's the goal. You know, this is our first year pushing for so much legislation as an organization. I definitely encourage people to go to the website and read more about them or just ask us questions. We're always happy to answer. Our goal is to get them through this year during the session, but ultimately, that's the commitment we make to the community. If something doesn't work out this year, we're going to be back at it next year because we think this is really important. We think this is a generational opportunity to look in other directions. And honestly, uh, the conditions are really begging for it. Minnesota, like other Midwest states, is a big polluter in the world. Vehicle emissions is one of the main reasons. And so we feel like it's important to focus on it. And your website is Our Streets Minneapolis, but it's abbreviated. OurStreetsMPLS.org. And on the landing page, you'll see something that'll say Minnesota State Legislative Agenda, and you'll go there. You know, another thing that I'll add is a lot of our work is really focused on uplifting communities that have been harmed by past transportation decisions, that this isn't just like a blanket over transportation, like it clearly disproportionately impacts BIPOC communities. This is also an opportunity for people to get involved and learn more about how these communities have been struggling so much because of these transportation decisions. Okay, thank you, Jose Antonio Zayas Caban, Executive Director of Our Streets Minneapolis. Thank you. Great to be here. This is Todd Scott. He's the Executive Director of the Detroit Greenways Coalition. Hi, Todd. Hey, Nick. Um, We've had you on before. Thanks for coming on again. We are talking about legislative priorities. You want to tell us about what you're supporting? Sure. And there's a lot that we're supporting. I just want to focus on some of the things that I think people are going to find the most interesting. And the first is occurring at the state level. For the last three sessions in the House, a bill has been introduced that gives cities and um, road agencies more flexibility in setting speed limits because currently they really want to um, set them only based upon the 85th fastest motorist on the road. And this doesn't take into account um, land uses, like if it's next to a park or a rec center. It doesn't take into account the presence of bikes and pedestrians on the street, the crash history. So this bill, uh, House Bill 4012, clarifies that communities have flexibility in setting speed limits based upon these other factors. And it's not willy-nilly. I mean, it still needs to be studied with an engineering perspective, but it does give more flexibility in setting speed limits. One terrible example of what happened in Detroit, it was on a state road where the speed limit was 35 miles an hour and you had a neighborhood on one side of the street and you had a park on the other side of the street. And an eight-year-old boy was walking across the street to get to the park and was hit and killed after the speed limit had been raised to 45 miles per hour. Now, you can't say for sure whether, you know, the speed limit directly affected this fatality or not, but certainly when, when cars go 10 miles an hour faster, you know, they're less likely to be able to stop or to see pedestrians. And, you know, we want to give make sure uh, road agencies have the ability to keep those speed limits at 35 miles per hour. There's a lot of speed-related policy that people are trying to get past. The 85th percentile rule, shouldn't that be just done away with everywhere? It needs to be recognized that it's not scientific. It's something that came about probably as early as 1937. It's one of those things that feels right, but there's no proof that it's actually true, where you don't have a lot of other factors like parks and pedestrians and that. The 85th percentile might work okay, and it certainly is inexpensive to implement, which is very important in some rural areas of Michigan. You know, they don't want to have to hire an engineer to do a study. But in urban areas, the 85th percentile 
it makes less sense uh, than ever. So we're thankful that this bill has passed the House out of Senate committee with a recommendation to pass it. And we're just waiting for a vote on the Senate floor and it'll be off to the governor. Okay, very good. What are your other priorities? Something we've been working on since uh, 2010, believe it or not, and that is a complete streets ordinance in Detroit. And what that would do is codify the existing policy that whenever you reconstruct a road, you look at building it as a complete street where it's designed for all users to move along and to move across. They also would consider uh, green stormwater management as part of the road. So how do you deal with the stormwater that comes running off the road and process it without putting it into our combined sewer system. I'm sorry, do these have catchy names, these bills at all, or just, just the numbers? We're calling it Complete Streets Plus Ordinance. We got some really good model language that was developed for us by the American Heart Association, who is helping support us move this forward. We've run it past a number of different groups and collected a lot of feedback from folks. And we're optimistic that we can get it through council this year and approved. Um, we'll see. One of the biggest benefits to a policy like this or an ordinance like this is is how it affects other agencies that, that have roads in Detroit, because not all the roads in Detroit are owned by the city of Detroit. Many of them are owned by the state of Michigan, and many are owned by um, the county, uh, Wayne County. And so this ordinance helps coerce those agencies into doing the right thing and building complete streets in Detroit. Very good. Next. So much of this stuff at the state level is reactive. While we do have some platform of some things we want to do, oftentimes things come up that we weren't planning to see in the legislature that we need to jump on. Uh, one of those things that came up this year was uh, Mackinac Island in Michigan, which is uh, an island in northern Michigan, uh, you know, between the two peninsulas. And they do not have any car traffic. There's no cars on the island. And they're concerned that bikes are going too fast on the island. So they wanted to create a state law that sets a 15 mile an hour speed limit on roads on Mackinac Island. Unfortunately, they never considered that this could have effect on other roads throughout the state, including some in Detroit. And so we're working with the bill sponsor to try to get a change so that they can solve their problem without creating problems in Detroit and uh, the surrounding Metro Detroit area. Okay, very good. What and lastly, yeah, I mentioned House Bill 4921. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about automated speed enforcement, you know, nationally, but also in the state of Michigan. Well, currently, I'd say should say that automated speed enforcement is not allowed in the state of Michigan. It's been restricted due to an attorney general's opinion, but a bill was introduced to allow automated speed enforcement within construction zones where we often see cars speeding. And automated speed enforcement doesn't ticket everybody. Typically, you have to cross a threshold. You know, often that's 10 miles per hour. So you have to be going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit before it triggers, takes a foot of your license plate, and you uh, would receive a ticket in the mail. But 4921 takes that same model and implements it in school zones. You know, this bill's not moving really fast because it's always controversial when you do automated speed enforcement. And so the bill sponsor is being very careful. There's been a hearing, but he's listening and getting uh, ideas on things that need to change. You know, based on how this speed enforcement has been working in New York City, it's drastically reduced speeding in school zones. So we we came out in support of this bill and um, look forward to hopefully eventually getting a, getting a vote in the House Transportation Committee and, and moving on from there. But We'll see because there's always there's going to be pushback whenever you talk about expanding the city's ability to write tickets uh, for motorists. You wouldn't think that trying to do something about speeding in school zones would be all that controversial, but we've done episodes on it, so I know that it is. I mean, that's the key. That's why that's starting in school zones and construction zones, areas where people would probably have less 
concern than if you allowed them to go everywhere and could set up, you know, quote unquote, uh, speed traps. I would say too, you know, there's there's a very big equity concerns about automated speed enforcement. I mean, not in terms of bias, in terms of who's getting tickets, but in terms of where they're getting placed. We certainly don't want automated speed enforcement just slapped down on a road that has high speeding with folks who who cannot afford these tickets. I think um, first we'd rather see a major investment in the street, a complete streets design to slow cars down naturally, and then you're you're going to get those small percentage of people who continue to drive recklessly. And that's really what the automated speed enforcement should be there for. You know, when you have no other options left but to use law enforcement, um, I think this could be a good option. Okay. Thank you so much, Todd. That was your priorities for this time? (laughs) You know, it is for now, but you know, it it was interesting. During the hearing on the speed limit bill, there was strong bipartisan support at the committee level, which is not a common situation. In fact, one of the Republicans on the committee asked, you know, what else can we do? And that just made me think maybe we need to be a little bit more proactive and bring forward um, some other policy ideas that we've had on our priority list for a long time, and maybe we can get them through the House and Senate. So we'll see. All right. Thanks, Todd. Todd Scott, Executive Director of Detroit Greenways Coalition. Thanks, Nick. I really love those organizations because they are what help change policy. And I I hope that people will look around for a similar organization in their own city or state. Yeah, I really liked what Kendra from the California Bike Coalition had to say about the complete streets on every Caltrans project, which is similar to Healthy Streets LA, the ballot initiative in Los Angeles. You know, a month ago, no one was talking about speed governors, and now it's part of the conversation. And there's that amazing legislation in Detroit and Minneapolis. And this was just the three people that we happened to talk to this week. Right. So it must be going on everywhere. It's in the zeitgeist. Everybody has an opinion, and nobody knows that more than my next guest, Paul Thornton, who is the letters editor of the Los Angeles Times. Paul, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, I asked you to come on the show because you recently wrote an op-ed, which is, I don't know if you normally do that as the letters editor, but it was such a wonderful op-ed. I thought that you said biking in Los Angeles is so much fun. Now we have to make it safe. And I could not agree with you more. First, that biking is in Los Angeles so much fun and it is terribly not safe. So what prompted you to write it and what kind of responses have you gotten? Hi. Yeah, it was actually a privilege to write that. I started commuting by bike to El Segundo, where the LA Times is located uh, last fall. And I had written about it only because it felt like I had discovered the transportation promised land by moving across 23 miles of Los Angeles on an e-bike. Um, it was it was a really wonderful experience when I started. It's still a wonderful experience. And uh, the questions I always get from people are, you know, is it safe? Right. How I answer that question has been to dodge it by emphasizing how much fun it is and how soul-fulfilling it is to experience so much of this city at a street level to interact with people when I'm not behind a windshield, when I'm not behind a door, when I'm not insulated from uh, the city's sounds to interact with the surroundings. It's fun. Instead of showing up to work in El Segundo frazzled and upset, 
I often, I, I feel energized. Um, I've said good morning to maybe 50 different people. And there have been times when people have honked at me. Yes, but more often than not, um, it's been a wonderful experience. And the sad thing is, if you are not an experienced cyclist, specifically in Los Angeles, with that, which has its own set of challenges, I cannot in good conscience recommend that you do what I do. But what right. I do is fun. It is a lot of fun. That's what prompted me to write this was I, I really wanted to add kind of a positive spin on this discussion of bike safety in Los Angeles. The safety question is keeping people from experiencing this city in a way that a lot of people who, who get on a saddle every day or every few days do. And people are scared from riding on our streets, rightly so, because our uh, traffic deaths have just skyrocketed. Yeah, last, last year, year was terrible. 336 lives were lost in the streets of Los Angeles. Well, yeah. one of the things I often hear is, well, you're not going to ride your bike 20 miles to work, but you clearly <laughs> proved that wrong. I have a motor. <laughs> I, I have, it's an electric bike. It's not exercise free. Uh, it's not nothing. I burn calories. I sweat on my way to work. Not as much as I would on uh, what in, in the cycling world we call acoustic bikes, which right. don't have motors. But on my electric bike, uh, I can carry some cargo pretty comfortably, uh, a few bags filled with my equipment and clothes into work. And the ride goes by fast because it's fun. It's just fun. I'm engaged with my environment. And I mean, yes, it is more often, it does more often take longer to get into the office, but it is a very reliable one hour and 15 or one hour and 20 minutes every day no matter what because i do not get stuck on freeway traffic right if if a, some tanker blows up on the 110 it doesn't affect me every day i get into work it, between one hour and 15 minutes and one hour and 20 minutes there is no two hour commute from hell or three hour commute from hell right um so yeah it, it does seem to a lot of people that it's strange that i'd get on my bike and ride 20 miles to work but I can guarantee you I will be there by 9.30 a.m. every right. morning after dropping off my kids from school. If I were driving, I couldn't guarantee that. And if I were taking transit, which I used to, to El Segundo, um, then we're talking three hours, unfortunately. Right. right. Well, let's address a little bit about what makes it unsafe. Sure. Uh, cars. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, great. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the short answer. That's the one word answer. Oh, it's a lot of things. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's cars, but the design of the roads, the condition of the roads, uh, a speed limit can say 25 miles an hour, but there will be four lanes with wide roads that invite you to drive 30, 40 miles an hour. Um, this sense that cars shouldn't have to wait for anything else but another car. The power of automobiles now, that is something that just does not get addressed very much. Um, I mean, on my bike, uh, one of the first mornings I actually commuted to El Segundo um, from my home in Alhambra, I saw a, a Mercedes SUV flipped over in someone's front yard probably a good 20 to 30 feet away from the street. I mean, the amount of power in these machines now right. um, is, is I don't think something that uh, unless you're outside a car, you really appreciate. And frankly, it's, I, I can't quantify this the way a, a, a federal study can, but just the attitude of drivers in the last four or five years, something has changed. Right. Um, 
I get honked at more than I ever have before. Uh, the other day, uh, I was I was waiting at the stoplight, and you know everyone complains that cyclists don't wait at stoplights, but when you do, you're blocking someone from turning right. And so the right. man honked at me, told me to f u f off, and he sped off like a real tough guy. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So it it's, it has to be a combination of factors that I think can only exist when people are driving. People don't behave this way when they're outside of a car. They don't. Yeah, they no, don't totally. Prefer. Something about being behind a window shield and, and behind yeah. the steering wheel brings that out, whether it's that you're paying all this money for this car and yeah. it can go so fast, but you are constrained by the traffic and you can't go faster, whether that's what causes the anger. It's, yeah. it's also awful. It is awful. And I hate to say this, but there have been some infrastructure upgrades in Los Angeles over the last 10 years. I started riding regularly in uh, Southern California after I graduated college uh, in 2005. And um, I, I think that it is just driver's attitude, the power of automobiles um, that has changed. And I think that's what's kind of forced the hand of a lot of people who are on bikes now to support something like Measure HLA. Right. Well, um, I wanted to get to that. The title of your article is Cycling in LA is Fun. Now let's make it safe. Mm -hmm. How do we make it safe? Infrastructure. Infrastructure, great. Segregating uh, cyclists from motorists, giving cyclists an infrastructure that invites them onto the street, that protects them from automobiles, and just slowing cars down. That, that I feel, is really the only way to make anyone who is not in a car safer on the streets, for right. cars to drive slower, and for pedestrians and cyclists and people waiting for the bus to actually be protected. You know, I'm not talking about giving everyone a gun or anything. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, curb-separated bikeways. And much as uh, a driver might not like uh, to hear this, but something that makes their car feel the consequences of straying into the bike lane. You know, you're right. going to hit a curb instead of, uh, mashing one of those flimsy plastic bollards. Or a person, right. Or a person, yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely starting to have the conversation of no right on red and yep. speed governors on cars. Um, yep. I'm sure you followed the Rebecca Grossman trial up yes. in Lake Village. And, you know, here's a person who was going 81 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. And she was only able to do that because the road allowed her to do that. And, of course, yeah. the consequences were tragic. And you know what kills me about that? Uh, well, I mean, there are a lot of horrible things about that. But in this conversation about speed governors and people feel it's their inalienable right to exceed the speed limit by however much they want and these speed governors. They would still be allowed to exceed the speed limit in California under this proposal. Right. Um, but my e-bike comes with a speed governor. Right. My 50-pound e-bike does not let me throttle higher than 21 miles an hour. I can only pedal assist a, a little higher than that. I mean, I'm sure I could hurt someone if I hit them, but a car going 30 miles an hour does a lot more damage than me hitting right. someone at 20 miles an hour. And I've never hit anyone <laughs> in my 20 years of cycling in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I would love to see speed governors on automobiles. And at least on people that are regularly cited for speeding. Like Rebecca Grossman. And in the we just had um, 
some dialogue about a person running for uh, the city council in Los Angeles, Wendy Carrillo, who right. uh, was um, DUI, I pulled over for DUI and very little of the discussion involved uh, in that incident was about the fact that she put people in danger. So much of it was about recovering from alcoholism, which is very good. We need to have more conversations about that. But the idea that road safety and pedestrian safety and cyclist safety doesn't even register when we're talking about a lot of these issues, I think betrays the mindset of many people who use roads and streets in Los Angeles right now. And I think that's a shame. Right. Well, we on Bike Talk support HLA, and we were really glad to see that the Los Angeles Times supported HLA, and HLA is the Healthy Streets Los Angeles initiative that is on the ballot in early March. I wonder if you could address what the conversation was at the LA Times about coming out in support of HLA. Well, I am not on the editorial board, but uh, what I do know is that the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times has been... Uh, very pro-bike, pro-transit for more than a decade. Yeah. Um, that started uh, back in, I believe it was 2012 or 2011. Uh, we had this series called Roadshare Los Angeles, which involved us recognizing, the editorial board recognizing that things ought to change in Los Angeles. We have a city that was designed um, largely for automobile use, and that's simply not sustainable going forward. Right. The editorial board, I believe it was 2011, de- it declared itself in black and white. We are pro-bike. I wrote a few pieces uh, for that series. So the editorial board's support of Measure uh, HLA is really in line with that. Um, it's been uh, uh, very supportive of efforts to um, increase transit ridership, to improve service. So I was not surprised at all that the editorial board supported uh, measure HLA. I, you know, I can't speak for their reasons, but this is completely in line with the editorial board's thinking. Right. Well, it means so much to all of the advocates when mainstream publications like the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times come out in favor of these kinds of things because it it's helps spread the word to a much bigger audience. I wonder if if you can address also I really love reading the letters to the editor. (laughs) And when there's a story in the paper about safe streets or about bikes, I'm always amazed at what I think is the ignorance of many of the people who write letters in anti the support of bikes. And I'm curious from your vantage point, if you could address some of the feedback that you either got for your op-ed or that you get Mm -hmm. from stories about safe streets and how you manage those letters and how you put them in the paper. Well, as the letters editor, I am paid to be magnanimous (laughs) about Um, this. I'm I'm not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I just appreciate it when people uh, read something and and respond to it and respond to it uh, thoughtfully. When I get uh, a letter in response to something I wrote advocating for uh, more bike and transit infrastructure, Someone writes a letter responding to specific points, even if they disagree with me, I thought, well, it got read. It got put in front of someone who now has something else to consider when they go into the voting booth and uh, mark their choice. That said, there have been emails written to me personally, not as a letter to the editor, but to me personally, that will say that this is some kind of weird fantasy, that we can uh, accommodate bikes on the streets of Los Angeles 
Los Angeles was designed for the automobile. You know, what do you do about uh, people with disabilities? What do you do in neighborhoods uh, that rely on street parking, um, et cetera? And I, I mean, what I think in response to something like uh, uh, someone saying, what do you do about people with disabilities? I'd say that, well, if we actually removed uh, improved traffic, then people with disabilities who absolutely have to drive right. would have a better situation on the roads if there were right. more bikes. So there's that. But there's just this sense that it's all very zero sum, that if cyclists are accommodated better, and this is really not about increasing our travel times, it's about making sure we get where we need to go in one piece. This is about uh, making sure that I, I, we feel like we can take the next bike ride without you know, the conversations that I have with my wife and my family assuring them that I'm going to do my best not to die on my way to work. Well, I'd like the infrastructure to actually answer that question for them. Um, we don't have the same conversations about whether it's safe to drive to work. And it's not the, always safe to drive. It's to not work. always safe, but it's safest for the people in the automobile. Exactly. Um, yeah. And we don't think very few of us think anything of the person who isn't in, in an automobile. I, I, I mean, safety tests are done almost totally with the consideration of the motorists and passengers in mind and nothing about what's imposed on people outside cars. So the short answer is I think a lot whenever someone writes uh, a response to me with just this loaded language, and I want to unpack every word of it, every single word of it. And I want to point to FHA, Federal Highway uh, Administration studies that say this actually, that the most effective way to reduce traffic deaths is to slow down traffic. Right. Unequivocally, uh, I want to point to other cities, not just in Europe, but in North America that have made huge strides. Cities in our own backyard. Right. Pasadena, Long Beach, yeah. my Santa own city Monica, of Alhambra, right. Santa yeah. Monica, my own city of Alhambra, which for years was the finish the 710 city. Yeah. You know, we wanted to build a freeway and it's there's been a dramatic reversal. Uh, I, I want to say all these things, but what I try to do now with what I write is to try to put a human face on uh, the people who are riding bikes, the people who are taking transit, who are at increased danger. You know, I have children too. They want me to come home just as much as they want a person in a Tesla to come home. Right. I see as, as just sort of one of the reasons why I write what I do now. Paul, thank you so much for your article and <laughs> thanks for managing the letters to the editor of the LA Times. Sure. It's, a, it's a treat to read. And thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you, Taylor. I love it when mainstream publications like the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times come out spreading the good word. It really reaches a larger audience. The Firefighters Union was actually fighting against safe streets. And lo and behold, the Los Angeles Times editorial page came out with another article clapping back at the firefighters union. Their argument about how healthy streets and infrastructure would slow emergency vehicles, the city's own environmental impact report showed that redesigning the street would actually make ambulances and fire trucks more able to get by car traffic. Right. When you build a bus only lane or when you build a left turn lane, there is an open lane for emergency vehicles. These high speeds are often what's killing people. So it doesn't really make sense to keep things the same way. Right, exactly. Right. What percentage of the accidents that fire trucks and ambulances are heading towards 
are because the streets are unsafe because of car crashes. Yeah, exactly. Next week, we're going to have Jesse Singer on. And Jesse wrote the seminal book, There Are No Accidents. So come back next week and listen to Jesse Singer. If you have any comments or questions or you want us to cover something, go to our website, biketalk.org. Send us a portrait of you and your bike, and we'll put that on our website. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Yeah, thanks, y'all, as always. Thanks, Taylor. Ride safe, everybody. Hi, this is Stacy with A Bike Thought. Since the dawn of the automobile, we've lost over 4 million Americans due to traffic violence. We lose 200,000 Americans every year to air pollution. Emissions from transportation are the largest single source of greenhouse gases in the U.S., and this nation has emitted more of them than any other on Earth. We simply do not have 50 or even 20 years to make change. Everyone should be able to travel their city, state, and nation as safely and easily outside of a car as they can within one. This freedom for people must be one of our national priorities. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the Law Offices of Pocras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Oh, catch yourself a bike.